Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for indeed being our Father. Someone who rejoices in hemming us in, in love and protection from all sides and keeping us safe through this life, which, Father, we know can be very, very hard. Thanks for being our partner and for inviting us to partner with you in loving the world in Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And while you're doing that, hello! How are you guys? Good. My family and I are back from our little cottage on Lake Michigan. Every year, every year my parents give us this gift of just getting away for a few weeks. You're looking at a sunset um, over Lake Michigan. Beautiful, isn't it? It, um, it really is true that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Amen. There's Ben leaping off the back of a boat. Great shot, don't you think? And there's, uh, there's another place we visited and lived to tell about it. That's the Top Thrill Dragster Roller Coaster at Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. You didn't know you were going to get a slideshow of our vacation this morning, did you? Captive audience, who can resist, right? There's only 40 more. Um, that roller coaster, if you like roller coasters, um, you fly out of the gate to 120 miles an hour in less than four seconds. You climb 90 degrees straight up to 420 feet is the top of that thing. And then you come barreling down the other side. The whole thing takes 17 seconds. You don't breathe the whole time. It's terrific. You get a little closer to heaven in more ways than one, I think. Hey, that, um, that time away is priceless to us, and we just wanted to say thank you, really, for allowing us to be gone for so long. So thank you very much. So, from sunsets and roller coasters, it's great to be back. Many of you, many of you have already told me how much you enjoyed my friends Craig Blomberg and Doug Rothheis while we were gone. I, um, I understand Doug in particular made my sermons seem brief. <laughs> yes, that's all part of the master plan. Hey, it's great to be home with you all, really. I miss, I really miss um, just being with you and sharing God's Word together with you. So let's get after it again, shall we? Amen? Your Bibles are open to Philippians chapter 1, where we find one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, I would imagine. It's verse 21, where Paul proclaims, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How many of you have heard that before? For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Yeah, almost everyone. Have you ever reflected, however, on what that means exactly? What does Paul mean? To live is Christ, and to die is gain. That, um, that brief but powerful statement has been 
especially on my heart this past week. My grandma Lanting passed away last Sunday. And the morning of her funeral, I woke up, I woke up with Philippians 1.21 echoing in my head. I, I had been dreaming those words. I don't remember the exact dream, but I woke up on my mind as I opened my eyes to live as Christ and to die as gain. And um, I told Jill about it over breakfast, and we talked about how my grandma really knew the truth of those words, lived them, in fact. She knew, she knew where Paul was coming from when he said to live as Christ and to die is gain. But the story doesn't end there. Later that morning, we went to the funeral service, and then after lunch, we joined in our small town processional to the cemetery. And after that short ceremony, sort of as everyone was turning to leave, I noticed last minute out of the corner of my eye two headstones which were set to one side. My grandma's headstone ready to be put in place after her casket was buried. And the one next to it, my grandpa's headstone, which they had to move to make way for my grandma's grave next to his. My grandpa died uh, some 18 years ago. And so I paused from going back to the car to wander over to my grandma's headstone to get a closer look. And I looked down, and this is what I saw. Yes, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I had, I had no idea that my grandma chose that verse for her headstone. So I kind of had one of those oh, moments, right? I stood there. I stood there for a few seconds, the hair standing up on the back of my neck, and I think I even involuntarily looked up, you know. I'm not sure why, as I, you know, whether my grandma was looking down and smiling on me, or if you know, lightning was about to strike, I don't know. And so I look over where Jill is uh, talking with some friends. I said, Jill, come over here. So I motioned Jill over to come and take a look. And she took a look down there too. And, and we both just stared in silence at that headstone. It, it, it was a powerful moment. And as I was standing there, I, finally I leaned over and I whispered to Jill, I think I know what I'll preach about next Sunday. <laughs> so here we are. And that's how we got to Philippians 1, verse 21. To live as Christ... To die is gain. What, what does that mean, really? And not just what it means here, but what does it mean in a way that answers the question as well? What should we do about it? As always, there is context surrounding, in this case, Paul's famous six Greek words, to live Christ, to die gain. So let's read a little of that context this morning. Your Bibles are open to Philippians chapter 1, and I'll begin reading at verse 18b with that word, yes. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, Paul writes, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, 
To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. These are the words of very God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison when he writes his letter to the Philippians, probably in Rome under house arrest near the end of his ministry. And so he writes at a time when his own death may be imminent. And with that likelihood of death staring Paul in the face, he explains how remarkably indifferent or at peace he is, whether he lives or dies. In short, he's at peace because either way, life or death, it's all about Jesus. Either way, whether he lives or dies, he's with Jesus. To live is Christ, he says. And to die is gain, because as Paul says in verse 23, he'll also be with Jesus when he dies. So it's Jesus, live or die, that explains Paul's almost indifference as death draws near. Now, Even though Jesus is with Paul in life or in in death, there are a couple of differences. First, in Paul's words in verse 22, if he lives, then his fruitful labor will continue. His labor, with all of its struggle and hardship, his labor in spreading the Gospel. But when he dies, that labor, of course, will come to an end. So, So one difference is Paul's labor, his Suffering for the name of Jesus comes to an end at death. A second difference is, even though Jesus is with Paul in life and in death, at death, Paul will be with Jesus more fully, we could say. In Jesus' words, in the Gospel of John, Jesus will come and take Paul to where Jesus is. He'll enjoy Jesus' physical presence in a more realized way than he does if he lives. And so that's why Paul can speak of death being a gain. Jesus is with him, live or die, but when he dies, there's no more chains, no more stonings, no more shipwrecks, no more heartache, no more suffering, no more thorn in the flesh, and he'll be as close as possible to his rabbi, Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me dive in further by starting with that second part first. To die is gain. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? To die is gain. You know, I I have little doubt we acknowledge the theological truth of that statement. To die is gain. But do we truly 
feel that way in life? Do we feel that as deeply as the Apostle Paul did, do you think? It has been observed by many that death is an embarrassment to modern Western culture. And little wonder, I mean, death would have to be the worst possible event imaginable for those who believe they have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Death pretty much trumps those rights. And our culture's way of coping with the embarrassment of death seems to be to deny it or to at least ignore it as best we can. You won't find our culture engaging um, in a serious talk at least about death very often. It's embarrassing that we can't in our own system, our own strength, our own worldview even, do anything about it. And it's in the face it's in the face of that terrifying helplessness are we even more likely to begin clutching our material possessions more tightly for the security they can give Is it possible do you think to love our lives too much What I mean by that is, love our lives too much because of all the fun and vacation and pleasure and stuff that we get from it. Death again? Are you kidding me? We lose it all. Death is a disaster to modern Western culture in particular, which tends to make humankind the measure of all things. One commentator put it this way, We live in a culture that thinks of physical death with such dread that society's highest goal is to postpone death as long as possible. When it finally occurs, it is something of an embarrassment. Contrast that with an Iranian Christian named Mehdi Dibaj, for example. Mehdi Dibaj was imprisoned by the governor of, government of Iran, Iran in 1984 on the charge of apostasy since he had converted from Islam to Christianity. The penalty for this crime, according to Islamic law that ruled Iran, was death. Mehdi languished in prison for ten years before his case came to trial. When it did... His written statement of defense was a simple and straightforward reaffirmation of commitment to Jesus Christ. The last few lines of that defense contain this remarkable paragraph. Mady writes, Jesus Christ is our Savior and He is the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the Gospel, and I have committed my life into His hands. Life, for me, is an opportunity to serve Him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. 
Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of His holy name, but am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. On December 12, 1993, the court before whom this defense was made sentenced Mady to execution. And then, under intense pressure from people in the West who knew of the case, including the U.S. State Department, the Iranian government, arranged for Mady's release in January 1994. Seven months later, Mady was found dead under suspicious circumstances in a Tehran park, the third Christian murdered in Iran after his release from prison. Some Christian groups suspected the complicity of the Iranian government. Mady understood, I think, and lived out that to die is indeed gain. And maybe, if we don't feel that as deeply as we should, it's because we've fallen in love with life for our own sake and pleasure. We've lost the perspective of the eternal in our fascination with the temporary. We've forgotten. We've forgotten the deepest purpose of our life. It ain't us. Which brings us to the first half of Paul's proclamation, to live is Christ. Hey, to live! Now we're talking, we like to live! Yes, we do, but Paul adds, to live is Christ. What exactly does that mean? To live is Christ. Many possible ways to go, and many commentators do. In my opinion, context really helps us here. In the very next verse, Paul explains living in Christ means fruitful labor. In other words, the Christian life is work. Fruitful work, but work nonetheless. And so do we pause a bit in our eagerness toward the Christian life to live. Now we're talking to work. Now Come again? Not only does Paul describe living as work, but this entire passage we read this morning, we read this morning, is a, it's a transitional passage sandwiched between Paul describing in detail his hardship, his incredibly difficult circumstances. And then on the other side of this passage turns to the challenging circumstances in the lives of the Philippian Christians. I wish we had more time to unpack this, but allow me to summarize. Jesus came as a living sacrifice. He came to lay down His life for others. He lived to die. Christ, in this context of suffering and difficult circumstances, both of Paul and the Philippians, Christ in this context at least seems synonymous with Self-sacrifice for the sake of others. And so a paraphrase, at least, of Philippians 1.21 might be something like this. To live is self-sacrifice for the sake of others, and to die is relief from the hard work of self-sacrifice and being more fully with Jesus. 
To live is Christ. Fruitful labor in Paul's words, but labor, work, all the same. Life is hard. And the Christian life even more so because we're called to sacrifice self for others. And that's really hard to do. Have you noticed? It doesn't come naturally to us. Not in the same way that self-preservation and enhancement seems to. In realizing the difficulty of the Christian life, Paul lets us in on his struggle. His honesty and his vulnerability here is breathtaking. Another commentator notes it this way, Paul is laying bare his soul and frankly admitting a certain embarrassment. He acknowledges a tension, a trying and perhaps almost unbearable tension between personal desire to depart and be with Jesus and his Christian duty, remain in the body for the sake of the Philippians. Now contrast that a bit with the value our culture places on life over death. I mean, Paul feels living is more sacrificial than dying. Why? Because he knows that Christian living especially will involve more self-sacrificial hardship and dying will result in an end to his labor and being closer to Jesus. Wow! And the only way one could possibly get there is to have their head on straight regarding what Christian living is all about. Folks, the Christian life is not a health and wealth vacation. Life is not about us. And that's about as counter 21st century American secular culture as one can get. Now, It's not to say that life doesn't involve joy, including sunsets and roller coasters. It's breathtaking, and God gives us this amazing gift of life. And there's laughter, and there's fellowship, and there's friendship, and there's love, joy, peace, patience. It's spectacular, the universe that God blessed us with to enjoy. But it seems to me we need to be careful that in the enjoyment of it all, we don't let the devil slide us over into thinking, that's all there is to it. This is all mine just to enjoy for as long as I have here. Yes. And forget with some sobriety that we're here for a purpose. Someone else notes this about the Apostle Paul. Every major feature of his life at the time when he wrote the letter, his physical comfort, the opinions others have about him, his position with respect to the secular authorities, and the question whether he lives or dies, they're all molded by his commitment to the advancement of the Gospel. The culture of the Western world with its elevation of personal freedom and individual rights above virtually every other ideal does not provide a friendly environment for the development of the notions that Paul expresses here. And we who are the products of that culture will have to resist the temptation to soften the impact of this passage. 
To live is Christ. To live is to lay down our lives, our own interests for others. And remarkably, given especially Paul's realization that to die is indeed gain, that's exactly what Paul did. He was willing to put the Philippians' interest above his own greater personal desire. And I have a two-word question for us this morning. Do we? Do we ask ourselves each morning, what can I do for someone else today? What of myself can I sacrifice for someone else today? Or do these questions and questions like them often get lost or choked out by the tremendous pressure and focus on our own pain and struggle rather than on the pain and struggle of others? Husbands, our fruitful labor, our work, our Christian duty, our self-sacrifice is to submissively focus on the pain of our wives. Wives, your job in Christ is to submissively self-sacrifice to your husband. Fathers and mothers, focus on the pain of your children. And children, focus on the pain and what you can do sacrificially for your parents. And what about church? (laughs) You know, this gets very, very near to the heart of what church is intended to be. Yes, church is indeed where we come as we've done today and this morning in praise and worship and message, I hope too, we experience God together in praise and in worship. And what an amazing experience that is. But to what ultimate end? Our enjoyment of that experience, is that the ultimate end? Or is the ultimate end others? Just like the Philippians were for Paul. Isn't the ends of our experiencing God together so that we're better able to see past ourselves and focus on the pain of the people sitting next to us? What if we all did that all the time? What if we all did that all the time? Focused on what we could do self-sacrificially for those sitting next to us. Frankly, I think we'd need a bigger church. I don't think we could keep people away, not from that kind of love. Or how about this? Wouldn't it be powerful if different ministries within the church asked what they could do for other ministries in the church? (laughs) Wow! And I know, we've been blessed greatly because that does indeed happen here. But could it, should it, will it happen more? It's just an idea. Paul has the same idea in Philippians when he says in the very next chapter, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. And of course, that's Paul's example to the church of his day. He's willing to live on in hardship for them. I have a tendency to start a lot of sentences like this. I think this is what I think is important, or this is what I think we should do. Instead, I'd like to try beginning more sentences with, what do you think? What do you think we should do? Or even, because I know you think this is important, let's do it your way. 
Or what can I do for you? My hunch is a community where these words are heard a lot is a self-sacrificial, loving community. President John Kennedy was on the right track when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Let's take that all the way to its Christian extreme, shall we? Ask not what life can do for you, but what your life can do for others. Or how about, ask not what your church can do for you, but what your church can do for others. Hey, Dave, can we put that on the door, do you think? Or how about, ask not what God can do for you, but what God can do through you for others. Maybe there are still some college-bound students in the room this morning. School starts soon. Can you guys believe it? I'd like to challenge you guys, wherever you are. Encourage you, beg you. And this goes for students of all ages too. As you make decisions on what to do with your life, what to study, what job to go after, who to marry, where to live, what to buy. And many of these huge, huge decisions that you are even now or will be making very soon. Would you please consider putting at the top of your decision-making process the following factor. How will my choice maximize my self-sacrificing service to others in Jesus' name? Would you include that as you make those decisions in the next few months and years? And people of all ages, continue asking ourselves, can't we? What can I sacrifice to others? Because as Paul says, to live is Christ. My grandma did this. And for that matter, so did my father-in-law, who as many of you know, passed away a year ago, August 28th. That date is fast approaching, and we would really appreciate your prayers. Jill brought to my attention this past week the striking similarities between how her dad and my grandma died. Both died from complications after falling and breaking bones in their hip. And we wondered for a bit at the coincidence of that. And even last night as I was reflecting on that while putting some finishing touches on the message this morning, something more came to mind. For you see, both Don Anderson and Nell Lanting shared something else. Both of their lives and deaths testify that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In life, both were as other-focused as you can possibly imagine. And both channeled that focus primarily into their families, their spouses, their kids and grandkids. And with my grandma, 15 great-grandkids, all from only two kids herself. Both dad and grandma were prayer warriors, praying for each of us by name every day. And they testified in these ways and more 
that to live is indeed Christ, and lived as sacrifices for others for as long as they could stand, literally. And both of them, in their years preceding death, spoke longingly and lovingly of heaven. of the gain or relief from their pain and suffering and the gain of being as close as possible to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And both, both are now basking in that gain today and forevermore, praise God. And my brothers and sisters, my church family, oh, may the testimonies of the life and death of each of us be the same. Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you empathize and you know and you understand that the walk you've given us is a hard one. But we also know that you promise that when we step out on that walk, whether an inch or a mile, You step with us. And you give us the strength and the courage and the resolve to keep standing and to keep standing for others. Even though in our own personal desire we long to lay the trophy down and just to be with you as close as we possibly can. Father, would you ask, we ask, Father, that it would be enough. It would be enough for us now that one day that will be. And in the certainty of that hope, Father, would you strengthen again our resolve, our commitment to loving others and reaching them through our love and our spread of the gospel and our proclamation of your truth and your love and who you are to reach the world for the kingdom of heaven. Please, Father, in our own strength, we just can't do it. Give us the same strength you gave your servant, our brother, the Apostle Paul, to get back and desire to get back again for the sake of others. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand please and receive God's benediction? I thought it appropriate to come from the letter of Philippians, where Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice.
And let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week for the kids. God bless you all.